Hi, this is Sarah Tebow. And this is Liz Bernstein, and we are the hosts of the Side Woo Podcast. This is a space to investigate what makes a creative life possible. From the mundane to the sublime, the physical to the metaphysical. Welcome to the Side Woo. Welcome back to the Side Woo. This week, we talk with the prolific Krissa Potter. She is the founder of the brand People I've Loved, as well as the host of the podcast Bad at Keeping Secrets, which is also an email newsletter featured on Substack in 2022 as one of their standout email newsletters. Krissa is the author of three books, one of Ad Age's 24 Most Inspiring People of 2021, and one of Cosmo Magazine's 24 People Making the World a Better Place. Carissa's illustrations are gentle line drawings that tackle big subjects like emotional messiness, boundaries, and the search for meaning in a wild, imperfect world. Her newsletter and podcast interviews get into the nitty gritty of what it means to be alive and exist in a body, embodying the different roles of woman, mother, wife, and artist. We talk about much of this and more in our latest episode, with an emphasis on the structures and systems that we try and use to make sense of it all. I hope you enjoy our podcast. If so, you are welcome to leave us feedback, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You're welcome to donate via our Spotify listener support link, or if you like, follow us on Instagram at the sidewoo or email us any feedback at the sidewoo at gmail.com. And with that, I will leave you to the episode. Thank you. Are you a Scorpio? No, I'm a Taurus. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Something about your brooding search for meaning, I think, is very water sign, Scorpio, death and rebirth. So maybe you have some planets in Scorpio that. So I know absolutely nothing about astrology. And I feel like in my mind right now, I'm in this really particular place where nothing seems certain. And I keep interjecting the wrong words in the wrong places. I know so little about it that I feel like I could interchange the term astrology for astronomy and not notice. That's a super classic. Taurus is the bull, right? So it's like a forever solid moving. I mean, there's something like your brand, people I've loved is so philosophical and just in a never ending quest for meeting that it does feel kind of like the steady hardness Mm. of a bull, you know, because it just not in the ring where it's being attacked by a red. Which is so unfair <laughs> to that bull. Yeah, I know. More The bull and it's more of a Ferdinand, really. Well, and it's funny you, know. you say that, Liz, because um, as I was thinking about your birth chart and trying to suss out what your chart would look like, the sixth house came up for me, this idea of the daily and maybe something to do too with you being as Liz described it in our earlier conversation, a medical mom, where your life is so dictated in these increments of, I have to produce for my shop and my podcast, and I have to take care of all these day-to-day things for my child. I don't know. Do you feel like you're, how does that resonate with you? Because I felt like, man, you just keep going regardless 
nothing is more regular than you posting on Instagram and now like with your podcast. It's just so reliable. So I don't know. Well, I mean, it's weird because I don't think normally people would associate the term reliable with me. Oh, okay. Or a morning person. But no, but I, I have to be, I think Liz can relate to this, having someone who's dependent on you that has to have a very intense did you hear my Minnesota accent there? Intense. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I think it was this I hate to quote Chuck Close, but I think he was when in grad school, I remember he had this quote about showing up was the hardest part or people who show up get things done or whatever. And I think for me, if I couple that with sort of the research of people like, I don't know if you listen to Katie Milkman, it's teaches at Penn, who studies motivation. She makes the claim that you have to schedule it and you have to be excited about it and you have to set yourself up. Things aren't going to happen unless you plan them. And I'm not a planner, Mm. but I try to show up every day. I also think it's really, this sounds like kind of a bummer motivation, but I think other people, I'm really interconnected in terms of logistics in my life with other people's lives. And so I think I show up because other people are depending on me and I've learned to do that from a place of love and excitement and gratitude that I get to do what I do. That's super sweet. I love that. On the good days. What are the hard parts of that where you're like, that's true on the good days. What's true on the not good days about showing up? I don't feel alive. I feel mechanical. I feel like there's a part of me that is no longer living. And the routine and spontaneity and sort of wonder if I don't, if I don't really make it a priority to process those things I can get. I'm coming out of a pretty intense weekend and I'm just thinking like, oh, maybe I need to adjust my meds. So I don't, I don't know if it's particularly working, this routine. I would say it's working in the sense that I'm alive and Margaret's alive, but what is that life if it's all sort of, I mean, there are moments of joy for sure. I mean, but I don't know. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question without being kind of a downer. I think I I called a friend yesterday and was like, I don't know if you can handle this right now, but I'm just pretty, yeah. Bummer, man. Things, things feel kind of dire. I also think I'm like, I really need to quit the habit of looking at my newsfeed in the morning because that mm, also yeah. seems just not a good idea. It sets the day out for failure right off the bat. But there is How- – oh, well, I was just going to say there is something kind of Buddhist in the repetition of life and learning to process it from a place of non-attachment. And like I'm not someone who's like super pro routine or anything. I do have a couple of things that anchor me, but – Oh, what do you do? Oh, just, you know, have my little decaf tea or coffee in the morning with cream to make sure I feel special, you know, fancy. Um, I enjoy that that's the first on the list. I feel like that's very emotionally relatable <laughs> totally. to the the humans in 2023. You know? As everybody take a sip on cue. We, I feel yeah. like these are comfort stuffies for grownups, you know? Yes. Yes. I used to not be able to go to my therapy session without holding a cup. Like, And I actually don't think it was because of my alcoholism. I think I just like, 
I wanted the comfort and nurturance of something that was going to sustain me. I mean, even if it was just coffee, (laughs) you know, give me something. It was like, you know, a sort of nurturing feedback loop. Which means we're all reaching pretty hard. Right. <laughs> no. No, but that's real. To be comforted. I feel that. The warm beverage in your hand. That's yeah. Yeah. That's a real comfort zone thing. Yeah, I don't want to be without mine. I love the association with a stuffy, an adult stuffy. Because we're still in that stage where with my daughter who's three and a half, where we can't leave the house with them without some sort of comfort object. And I think another reason that this weekend was really hard was because we said goodbye to her pacifier. And she's not like she's, it's weird to be like, hi, I'm your caregiver who's supposed to provide for you and love you. And then I'm going to take away your primary sort of method of coping and comfort source. And it just feels shitty. But then on the other hand, you have this society being like, adults aren't supposed to have pacifiers. We have coffee cups. I was going to say, or... be an adult and use a coffee cup instead. Well, I mean, adults are like, you know, they vape. They, you know, we do a lot of things with our mouths besides just talk and sustain ourselves with nurturing food. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of in between times to like shove things in the pie hole that are, you know, maybe not an A for health and sustainability. Were either of you smokers ever? Yes. I love smoking. And this is such a like controversial statement to make in this time and age. And I feel like Sarah, I feel like there's a secret. Whenever you tell people, I feel like they're super disapproving of your life choices. I just never Um, like the taste, but I love the ritual of it. Like I like cloves because I kind of like the taste, even though that's even more embarrassing than liking cigarettes. Oh, I don't think it's embarrassing. I literally got mocked by strangers. They're like, oh, I love that when I was 13. (laughs) What, Krista, when was the last time you had a cigarette, do you think? I think at least like 10 years ago, what happened for me, uh, I would have never quit smoking, but the I started spontaneously vomiting from it. Uh, and so I'd be at work and I'll be like, it, I was working at the John Bergeron Gallery at the time. And for those of you who- No pressure to stay, you know. Composed. Composed. Um, but I would run outside on the street and vomit in front of YSL and then go back to work. But I think it was because I started birth control, a different birth control, and it just screwed my system. Also, it was for the best because I really wanted to make out with this guy at the time, and he was not into making out with cigarettes. Yeah. The person who had just been smoking. And I really wanted him to make out with me. So I feel it all kind of came together. I also eventually married him, even though I. And I'm, I'm glad I did that because it was probably for the best for both of us. But then like fast forward 12 years, finding out that I carry this genetic mutation that potentially predisposes me for lung cancer and other lung issues, it was probably really also wonderful. Um, serendipitous that I would have this vomiting issue. Wait, when was the last time you had a cigarette, Liz? I love smoking and thinking about it just brings me this weird, relaxed joy. Um, I had a cigarette probably 13 or 14 years ago, and I'm, I absolutely know that I can't indulge in like even a puff, a puff will go to, and I can't smoke. I mean, I literally, I feel my life would be, you know, I would be exiled from my life and I, I would my life more than I cigarettes kind of the same with alcohol, but, oh, it was my, it was one of the most self-soothing. I would have this ritual. I wasn't allowed to smoke in my house, but between the hours of midnight and three, 
I would stick a wet towel under the bathroom door and I would have one cigarette by myself in the pitch dark. And I was like, this is basically like brain sex you know it was just <laughs> well, the sneakiness of it the, oh I love oh I lo- and I lo- sort of I loved lying to people about it. like I would never do that like the whole thing was so just in my wheelhouse wow. this is so like a row tenenbaum yeah yes. <laughs> somewhere yeah in a bath for six months <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally margot right. tenenbaum what a what an inspo she was <laughs> <laughs> totally Well, Krista, I mean, back to Liz's earlier question and also thinking about your podcast, which is just this marathon slash sprint towards meaning and because it feels like you're both in it for the long run and trying to get there as fast as possible through just targeting the darkest questions you could possibly look at. Um, So what is your spiritual status other than wishing you could still be smoking? (laughs) <laughs> uh I think that I was just listening I'm actually interviewing Jennifer Michael Heck tomorrow she's the author of Stay and Doubt and she has a new book out The Wonder Paradox and I've been listening to her talk about she pretty steadfastly identifies as an atheist and but she was talking about how sort of Judeo-Christian centric the term atheist is and there's there's lots of meaning and wonder embedded in the world, I think, with without religion. Um, but I, I kind of toggle between agnostic and atheist. I think the reality is I will never be able to know it's outside of my consciousness. But then I also think sometimes I think, oh, I better just take a stamp and say like, oh, if you define atheism as this, I don't know, the lack of a master planner, a, a human then I think that's probably likely that there's not a, a master planner human that somehow has designed all of it. No, that does not seem likely. Yeah. If so, they need another degree. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like it's almost more comforting. Why would you want one of us in charge, you know? Or anything, any entity single-handedly in charge right. is like, yeah, not uh, doing well. I mean, I... I'm pretty comforted by the idea that it sort of absolves me of responsibility and duty in ways that I think is kind of freeing in some ways. Because, I mean, I guess it depends on how you define this entity and what amount of control they have. Mm. I I think for me, it becomes interesting because I also don't necessarily believe in free will. Mm-hmm. Are my juries out? Say, say more. Yeah, that's very controversial. That's unexpected thing to hear. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to say anything interesting or profound on it, but I feel when I've read about it in the past, the first person that comes to mind is, oh my gosh, who is the guy who did the monkey experiment where they're like three people are throwing a ball around and you're supposed to count how many times they throw bowl out of. Um, he, I believe he's a Canadian neuroscientist. I could be wrong, but he wrote a lot about how our conscious minds are actually behind in terms of when we understand a thought, it's that our neuroprocessing has already put our bodies into action. Mm. Yes. And so, 
I think that 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 to me seems to allude to the limitations of control over our situations and our bodies and our movements and our intentions. It seems more so likely that it's consciousness developed as a sort of way to understand and cope and exist and make meaning to continue on. I mean, I think meaning as a resource is tremendously valuable if I think about it for humans coming together and working together and existing harmoniously in a society. We need each other. And how, how do you, how do you meet each other if you don't have meaning or understand your relationships without meaning? Well, I feel like without the consciousness though, I mean, and I feel like this is actually what or this is what I hear you're saying is without the consciousness, you're just in the meaning. You don't have to create and analyze and, you know, like why we're so inspired by all of our dog friends, you know, who are more in the meaning rather than analyzing and catching up. But I also think it's why we like artwork, you know, and it's why we like music because we're very soothed when something speaks to our non-intellectual being. And I think we, it's one of the only things that calms us down really is sort of this, you know, pre and post language conversation is, is, is the shit and the limits of language are so profound when trying to find meaning, which is one of those ironies of trying to use language to find meaning when language literally can't be the thing that defines the meaning. Or it's limited by your experience, which you don't, if you're looking for meaning, you're not going to find it in the language that you have. But yeah, it's interesting when you talk about both like meaning and free will in the context of thoughts, because I think to Liz's point, we have our thoughts and then maybe the free will, which I feel like, you know, especially if you have anxiety or whatever, come at you in a way that you would never have chosen potentially, you know, you're like, why is that thought coming across or you know, that is not who I am. Or, you know, you get like upset and your more animalistic side comes out or whatever, you know. But I think where free will does come in is that moment of consciousness that's like, this is my thought. Now I get to choose how I react. And maybe it's not something that we are programmed to do right away. But then there's that process of building up a practice where all the mindfulness stuff comes in where you do have a choice, you know, like, how am I going to react to this situation? Yes, my body is going into fight or flight, but what is it that I want to do in my, you know, meat suit, as Jessica Lignadu <laughs> calls it, you know? So it's interesting that you brought that up because in mediumship, one of the things that is talked about with people on this planet is that we have free will. If someone violates your free will, that is against spiritual law within our dimension in our planet, whereas other dimensions maybe don't have that. And so that is the one thing that's really unique about our existence is that we do have the spiritual law. But the tricky part about that is your subconscious could be working against what you consciously think you want, at which point that's still kind of part of your free will. So I think it goes back to your point that it is complicated but I like to believe that there's some amount of it because otherwise it's too scary. I mean, it is. I, I think we've been like as someone who I think another reason I do this is because I want control and the agency. 
and so it is really frightening to think about how limited that is. I think in, in further complication, I think a lot of the sort of choice architecture that we're exposed to is, again, leading us in directions that we don't necessarily have agency over it. I wanted to note another thing is how it's interesting how specific it is when I think about so when I referenced Golato earlier, I think he believes where free will, if it exists, it is in how we choose to remember the past. Hmm. So then it informs the reflex narrative loops in our brain that we rely on like a reflex on your knee to be able to make the decision rapidly. Mm-hmm. But then when you think about there's, I forget the physicist's name. I think his first name is Brian. He's pretty famous. He was, he was on On Being recently and I can look him up later, but he was talking about the existence of free will within the particle structures in our brain and how it, he didn't believe in free will, but if there was free will, it would be on the cellular level and dictated from the particles' histories, which I right. thought was riveting. Again, I'm probably not summarizing no. this in, a, in, in the best way. I love that. Well, and like, um, I don't know, have you read Gary Zukav at all? The Seed of the mm-hmm. Soul? Well, his whole thing, and no. Oprah's like his number one fan. That's how I heard about him. But she talks about with him that really everything you do and all the energy you bring to something is through the intention that you set, which so you're like, okay, I'm going to go into this conversation and set the intention that we're going to have a really interesting conversation, you know, or you could go in and like, I want to get into a fight and your energy field takes that on energetically. And then that dictates everything that happens Mm. even more than your conscious mind trying to override what you've already decided you want. Oh, I buy that. I actually, I can get behind that. Because that makes sense then if you think about your cells really being the one to decide. Maybe you have that moment of intention setting and then everything else takes over. But I also like the idea that, you know, you can come in with the most cloudy, self-sabotaging, crap-ass intention where you you come in angry with an agenda, ready to prove your point, sit on how right you are. But through the action step, you will change the physiology in your brain. So if if you can, you know, do something 90 times in a row, basically, like, you know, you'll change the the roadmap of your synapses so that you readapt to something new. So like, for example, this is a random example, but I was always phobic of spiders. Like I just like I see a spider and I mean, there could be an infestation of mice to heaven and back. And I would be like, look at those cuties, get some cheese. But a spider, I will run to the end of the earth. But with my son, I pretended I loved spiders because I was like, if he finds out about this weakness, I am fucked. (laughs) You know, I can never let him know that I hate spiders. So I would just be like, look at that beautiful spider. It's so beautiful. (laughs) And after two years of this, I was like, I love spiders. They're so poetic (laughs) and so sweet. And they have these different energies to them. But it's one of those things where I went into that with absolutely no intention to change my belief system. And it just did through repetition Mm. of words, even though my intention was like, kill them all, (laughs) you know? Well, your intention was loving though. You know, it was how not to pass fear onto my son. Oh no, no, that wasn't it. It was to how not to let my son terrorize me with spiders because. Oh, you thought he would like chase after you? 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm not a boy mom, so yeah. I don't know about he this would, stuff. Yeah, he would find a spider and put it in my bed to see, like, mommy basically crawl. Are you serious? I mean, I just know his brain. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Yeah. That, you know, that's just the way it is. But yes, I also didn't want to pass on fear, but on a less altruistic level, I also didn't want it to be the funniest thing in the world to find a big spider on my head when I woke up. Liz, this is something I really enjoy about you, to kind of admit to both having multiple sources of motivation and looking at them through a non-judgmental lens, that it can it can be both. And that admitting that, like, I think it's completely a valid reason to pretend to love spiders so that you will further not be traumatized by your son. And also, I feel like kids are supposed to traumatize. That's their job and test boundaries. I think coming to terms with being honest about what drives us and motivates us, I think is difficult, but also extremely fascinating. And coming to it with a curious mindset, I think is something that I've witnessed in you. Oh, thank you. Is there a part, I mean, I feel like parenting has such a narrative of like, you're supposed to have just pure intentions with all of the choices you make. But in reality, there's often mixed motivations for why we make decisions as a parent. Some of it is self-serving. Some of it is serving for our kid. And some of it is, you know, just the shadow self, maybe not even uh, good for anybody, <laughs> you know, but it is react over from our own trauma or something like that. So yeah, I was just curious. How does that shine for you? Well, in folding into that, something you talked about in your podcast, that your family trained you to say the immediate thought out loud and maybe explain what that is and are you doing that with your child? Yes and no. I think, so what you're referring to, if, 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 I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, is this sort of value placed on being as open and honest in the moment. And that might be hurtful to some people, but it also is a reflection of what you're going through and not, I'm not saying that my family's not manipulative, but there's a sort of gut feeling. And I think it's also, I I grew up in a family of people who studied early childhood education. I think for me, having a child has really forced me to not do that as much and think about how my words and actions have or could possibly have effects on on my daughter. I think a lot of it is I, I catch myself in trying to control her for my own insecurities. For example, like being loud in public or getting dressed on time or looking a certain way or having friends. It's my hang up when in, in actuality, I really want to give her my open acceptance and, and love and appreciation for what is and not try to fit her into my expectations of what I wanted or was told I wanted for myself. And I think for me, I think somewhere there's probably a compromise. I think something that really holds me up in life is never knowing the right answer. Or I don't really feel like I have a steadfast nature in, in my belief system, or that, but maybe that's, I don't know if that's true. So with her, I I think I just try to be really honest with myself and her. And again, honesty is a fraught concept, but saying like, I'm feeling tired right now. So I don't think I, I don't want to play 
with you in this energetic way instead of being like, it's time to sit at the table and eat your dinner. Humanizing the mom experience where they get a bit more information into the why, which I feel like maybe we weren't brought up with as much. Yeah. I also think taking account for like why, yeah, why I'm forcing her to do things or why I have preferences. If I really dig into them, they all have to do with me and not her. Right. Yeah. But there's so much predicated on the parent maintaining stability that if, you know, it's a paradox. If you don't make those choices for yourself, then you will just become some martyr in the scenario and none of your needs are met and then nobody gets, you know, served by that model. I'm really trying to go through the concept of manipulation. There's this concept in AA, which is basically like you can be in a situation and look like you're there for the greater good of yourself and other people, but sometimes masqueraded kindness is still an agenda that is not for the greater good. It's serving yourself and yourself only. And so it doesn't always matter what the action is. This is exactly what you guys were saying, the intention. And like, where's the line with manipulation? Because everybody walks into a situation and you have your heart and you have your mind and you have your past. And that is so inherently a part of what you bring to a moment. You know, maybe there is no manipulation. (laughs) Now I'm getting lost in like, what if it doesn't exist? And it's just a continuum of how we give and take and seesaw and reflect. That's why I really like the use of alignment. That, like, yeah. I feel like recently within the last couple of years, I've like, whenever there's a disagreement, it's a, we're not aligned in our intentions or, mm-hmm. or our needs at this moment. And there's a sort of distancing of it. And it doesn't really place blame on other people. The other thing I had thought of when you were talking, Liz, was on The Bachelor when they're always like, so-and-so is there for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and you're <laughs> totally. like, well, what are the right reasons? <laughs> to be on The Fucking Bachelor. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, But it's like really, and I have to think about this. What are the right reasons to do anything? I think my, not to throw my mother-in-law under the bus because I really love her. But if she can justify it's for somebody else, even though it's doing what she wants, um, who cares? Just be like, I I wanted to buy this TV even though I didn't ask anybody. Because I wanted it. It doesn't have to be for somebody else because nobody wanted the TV. Well, and I think that's where you get into karma, where the further you get into these like deep spiritual texts, they're like, none of it really matters and judgment shouldn't exist because ultimately, if you believe you'll be reincarnated, the idea is like whatever you put out into the universe, you'll get back. So it's really a matter of you can literally do whatever you want and be as selfish as you want or have whatever intention, but just know that that's the universe that you're creating for yourself because like, I mean, I'm sure you guys have witnessed firsthand how karma affects you. You're like, oh, that thing that I did. Oh, that's happening to me now. I see, you know, maybe manipulation or judgment around people's behavior is useless because it's not really our job to police other people. It's like the thing that I've tried to do to feel more in control of the chaos around us is know that like, okay, someone does something shitty, it is not my job to tell them or correct it. 
and I say this on a personal level and not so much sociologically because I think, you know, it is our job to set boundaries through policy and everything else. But, but like, oh, that person was bad. Like, okay, let it go because they're going to experience the thing that they need to learn to realize like, oh, what I did was wrong and whatever. I've seen it happen in my own life and like, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I love the sort of like, I don't know a lot about karma more so than the popular Taylor Swift song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, Margaret's really into Taylor Swift right now. So that perfect entry point. I think that there was this, a couple of weeks ago on Hidden Brain, there was a neurologist on talking about how our perceptions of reality shape reality. And I think that that in a lot of ways echoes the concept of karma, mm. that, that we're predisposed from our basic sort of understandings of reality to then only have certain experiences that reflect those values, if that makes sense. And I think that from what I understand from karma, it's kind of a similar thing. Like mm. you do things that you want to then in turn somehow attract onto yourself. Yeah. Well, and even just thinking about how multiple people could experience a situation very differently, it's like, what energy did you bring going in? That's the thing you're priming your mind for, you know, to use the psychological term. And so it, even if you don't believe in the spiritual concept, like you said, physiologically, you're priming your mind. Like if you're going into your art career, for example, like I have to compete and, you know, edge people out, whatever. And then you get a show, are you going to enjoy it? Or are you going to think other people are going to try to take you down? You know, my guess is you're going to be more primed to think your position's vulnerable rather than it being this generous thing that you're sharing with others, you know? I mean, I feel like it all sort of, you know, the what goes around comes around, but I, it's also the role that fear plays in our decision-making. And in almost every aspect, when fear starts making decisions for us, it's not the right decision. And, you know, if we are scared that we'll never get another show, so we are dismissive of people who maybe love us, but can't get us anything, right. you know, then that is, you know, that will come back to undermine at some point in the future. By the way, I was just at Minnesota Street Projects and I was talking to a gallerist whose name I actually can't remember right now. Touche. Who, <laughs> who, somebody who was obviously more important, came in the gallery and he stopped mid-sentence. And I was asking about the artwork and about the photographs and kind of like where they staged and, you know, anyway. So mid-sentence, he stopped and walked away and started talking to this artist person who came in. Club. And I was so embarrassed. I, I mean, I internalized all the shame immediately and was like, I am now nothing. But I think at the end of the day, that is his fear. And it's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with me for asking questions at a show about the artwork. Um, no. But the, no, but the, Yeah. No, that's still a, a, a huge bummer. And I feel like it's so relatable. We've all been in that mm -hmm. moment where like someone we perceive is more important than us. It's sort of a leveling. But let me reassure you, Liz, there's no one more important than you. <laughs> and that guy really fucked Okay. Up. That's so cute. <laughs> uh, he just didn't know who you were. He just didn't have access. 
the information of who you are. Yeah. And does he know? You don't know who I am. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> uh, but I think I definitely have been trained and trained myself to make decisions primarily from fear, fear-based decisions. And I, I try to not do that. I also think I've been on this kick of like, oh, I, I don't know if I'll ever have a show again. Mm. <laughs> I don't have anything on the calendar and people hate me and I'm very out of touch and over and over and over again. And what I, I think it's, this was, I don't know if I should admit that this was how something that I do that's sort of soothing is, you know, or so I graduated with Jenny O'Dell mm. from SFAI and she's extremely brilliant, but also has had a lot of like pretty rapid success. Yeah. And I was, had some really intense jealousy pains. Um, but I think I really I don't think you're alone in that too. I just want to say like I think it probably hit like a ripple within our community of everyone who ever wanted to be on Barack Obama's best books of the year list. Yeah, I just saw her book last night when I was in a bookstore at the front and I was like, "Oh, snap." Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Anyway, so go on. I'm really excited. I mean, I think it's pretty brilliant. I thought how to how to do nothing was a little dense. That like it wasn't I thought it was really profound and poetic, but it took me a really long time to get through, which I feel like maybe saving time is also kind of the way that Jenny's brain works deserves space and time. And I guess she's arguing for that. So it makes sense. But oh, I think I try to reframe it as this sounds really stupid, is that Jenny's success is also my success. Um mm. and not a perfect system, but it helps me be less of like, I think at the root of my being, I really want to feel appreciated and unique and that I am contributing something. So there's nothing inherently that takes away from that notion from other people's success. Yeah. And I don't know why we were trained to think that there's finite resources, but it, and it doesn't make me any less special to have her called out but it, it feels like it is so in well, my brain my therapist used to call it compare and despair like, that's what jenny calls it too oh really <laughs> oh my god uh -huh. what if we had the same therapist she was the shit yeah so comparison is designed for you know despair it serves in some ways no other purpose although on your show carissa you did just have someone that said we don't compare ourselves enough in both directions you can be like, oh, that person just ran, you know, a triathlon and I'm barely running three miles a day. But then you don't compare yourself to your friends who are like, which I am not doing. Let me just be clear. But, you know, <laughs> you're not comparing it to your friends who don't run Downward or people who don't have legs, you know, like you're not going both ways. You're always only comparing yourself to the people who are getting the 0.1% of what you want you know? Um, but yeah, back to your, your kind of little exercise that you do with yourself. I've been practicing doing something similar where I like Ooh, what? someone gets something and I immediately knee jerk, get annoyed. And then I go, okay, <laughs> what if this was me and internalize, like, I can have this too. Is this something I want? Maybe not, or maybe it is. And regardless, that's theirs. I can also have mine. And I just imagine energetic space around both of us and kind of – because I feel like when you start thinking about the one person with the one thing, 
it gets really small. And so then by like creating this energetic space bubble where you're just opening up the picture and then the further you go, you can include more people. Like what if we all get what we want? Like how does that feel? You know? So I definitely consciously override my initial knee jerk when I'm scrolling Instagram or whatever else. Do you think it's because we're Minnesotan? It's jealousy and Minnesota inherently Minnesotan There's definitely like a repression of desire and mm-hmm. a repression of like you shouldn't stand out. It's like a Swedish thing, you know? And so to see someone doing it, it's like a shadow thing. If you've repressed it, you're like, oh, how dare they separate themselves <laughs> from the herd, you know? <laughs> Where in Minnesota are you from? I keep forgetting and you you keep reminding me. Uh what I graduated from Eden Prairie High School. Oh, hey. Where did you graduate from? Hopkins. Oh, yeah, because you had my cousin for biology, oh, Terry yeah. Carlson. You know, I remember them being there, but I don't think I had them. We actually, like, as I age, we look a lot alike. And I think we have the same haircut right now. I would just like to say that I know a higher proportion of Minnesotans out in California than one would think. Oh, yeah. Like, I can think of one, two, three, four. I mean, I mean, in a circle, I would call close. That's wild. So I don't, there is just something, something about it. You know, I don't know if the hardiness of the winter or something, because like, I don't know how humans do it, honestly, in that winter. Liz, I have an excuse for why I know so many Minnesotans. What is your excuse? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I really don't. So my best friend's wife is from Minnesota and Sarah's from Minnesota. Like I just, there's just Minnesota up, up in this joint. I don't know. Wait, Chris, can I ask you a question? Because I, we have a hard stop and this is a question I'm dying to ask about people I've loved. Um, Okay. So... You earlier talked about how you have this instinct where you want to take care of people and you want them to feel good. And maybe sometimes for selfish reasons. It's not always pure and altruistic. But I feel like people I've loved, the brand and the artwork that comes from it, literally, I have this advantage that I, I stock your stuff, you know, in my shop and I work in a shop. So I see the general population walk in and experience your artwork all the time. And I would say yours is the only one and no shade to the other artists. It's just a different type of outward experience where people look at it and have an outward, they laugh or they smile or they say, oh, you know, there's this real, like their inner essence is being reflected back at them. And that truth is very comforting to them, whether the truth is a hard truth, a medium truth or light truth. But the only thing in life that is actually comforting is reality. And when reality is reflected back to us, we are comforted and everything else, even if you're told you're wonderful, doesn't feel good. If you're told you're horrible, doesn't feel good. But reality feels good because it's, it's real. But I was wondering if you had that experience seeing your artwork in the world and seeing how it actually lands with people. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much. If I could, if I could ever have an intention, it would be that I think that, that people feel it's so cliche to be that people by knowing that they're not alone when they're having difficult moments, I think it's really a connective generative state that I, I try to cultivate. And I, but there's this other part of me that's like, and I think this is really annoying for people when I say this. Like, I don't think I can never understand because every time you say something like that, my brain immediately goes to like, 
oh, well, it doesn't matter and it doesn't mean anything and nobody cares. And also (laughs) that – Thanks, Brain. Yeah. And and when I when I say that it's like it's such a shame because it's like I don't know if you've ever felt that way of your youth when you look back at pictures of your young uh-huh. self and you're like oh wait a second I am not a horrible monster <laughs> like I felt like I was yeah. during the time period but I can't kick um, the sort of like oh I think I have a lot of insecurities. I, and I also, since COVID, don't really get out to see, I think when I was able to see how people responded in, in person, I think that I could find delight in it. But now I sort of sit in a small room by myself. Well, and I do think that speaks to the creative experience. You're ultimately not doing it for them, you know, like if we're really, truly only for other people, you would burn out. You know, I think for me, art has to come from my own desire. Otherwise, it ends up going south back to the intention thing. Like people can feel when it's you're trying to pander or something, you know, and none of your work feels like that. It always feels like it comes from like the deepest part of your soul delivered on this platter of nice line quality and, you know, cute, accessible people. Messy line quality. (laughs) Really nice line quality. But I also think your work is kind of dark when I, you know, because I I look at it collectively so much, it's kind of hard to metabolize it. You know, it's not live, laugh, love. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like the anxiety that you're feeling does translate. Yeah. It's painful. Yeah. Over, you're like using that to fuel the realness as Liz was saying. Well, I think, I don't know, again, maybe this goes back to being raised Minnesotan or being raised female of this intense pressure to be positive all the time. And I think it's a relief to be able to acknowledge that life is hard and in a, in a real profound way that gives us this, I mean, not to be used for return permission, to like be with what is. But I do think I am to an extent, again, I don't know if this is even the right term, mentally ill or like have dealt with depression and anxiety. I think I'm more so an anxious person now as I identify more as an anxious person. And it just is something I feel like I've had to mask for most of my life for other people's appreciation and acceptance. And I think I, I don't know if I feel like I really want to experience a full emotional spectrum that that makes me feel alive and getting to indulge in this, the sadness and the part of you that wants to wallow in, in the pain is closer to reality. Cause like life is pretty, even though all meaning, if I think about it as a human construct, that's really fucking painful and ugly and denying that extra characteristic seems also delusional. I'm not saying that delusional delusional thinking isn't useful, but... (laughs) Comes in real handy from time to time. Oh, it's really handy. I mean, even disassociation, you know, you you do what you have to do to live through things. And sometimes delusion is part of it. It's a thing, yeah. Yeah. Can you define... So my therapist brought up disassociation last week and... I'm kind of confused by what do you how do you define disassociation? You know, asterisks, I am not a 
great definer when it comes to actual specifics of the word, because I was thinking of a concept, but my understanding of it is if something is happening, your consciousness leaves the situation behind and becomes basically disassociated from the reality that is happening. I do that. So it (laughs) is, it's a way of surviving. And, you know, it, it, one of the most extreme versions of it is disassociative identity disorder, which was used to be a personality disorder. Um, I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole about this, Mm. but where basically you have different personalities in, in yourself and some of them know things and some of them don't. And if you can't consciously handle maybe some of the things that happened to you, you switch to another person within you that doesn't know about that trauma. So that's the most extreme case of it, but it really means distancing yourself from either a historical event or a current situation that's triggering that trauma. Like, I don't know if this is a good example, but whenever I'm being pressured to get ready to leave or moving has to happen or because, you know, I've moved apartments a lot, I will completely check out and all of a sudden need to go on like an SNL binge, you know, where you have this mounting pressure of life crashing in on you and just like a desire to do something else completely that will kind of subtly sabotage you. So there's a relationship between self-sabotage and and disassociation. Well, I think in that case that that is the relationship. But I mean, I don't know clinically if that's how one would connect it. I think the tricky thing for me is that where is the threshold of normalcy? Because I think this idea also is counter counterproductive to think about ourselves as a one unit that doesn't shift and change to then on the other side of the spectrum, having this sort of not knowledge of the other, the, having a multiple the personality. What was the term you used for? Disassociative identity disorder. Disassociative identity disorder. It seems, again, unlogical to think that we don't change with our environments and that we don't that we don't become who we think the other people expect us to be in every given situation. Mm. It's the difference just that we if we have the disorder that we don't actively we can't access the information from the other personalities. Yeah, you can't. It's completely blocked. But it's driven by like really severe trauma, right? Like Yes, yes. So people with more moderate things, maybe something gets triggered and they, you know, you kind of go into a mild not trance, that's even too strong a word, but you sort of distance yourself. You like from check out. Hap- you check you totally check out. And it's like whatever form know, that takes. And then I think what, yeah. where the the self-sabotage comes in is you're like, I no longer want to be responsible for the outcome. And so you kind of create an environment in which you're no longer partaking in an active way. And so things happen to you. It's funny because my the episode that's going to air right before this, we talk a lot about locus of control and like whether the world is happening to you or you feel like you have agency. And people who have an external locus of control are inherently a lot less happy and confident and have lower self-esteem and lower feelings of self-efficacy. I would love to hear you do an episode on it because me and the other guests were hashing through it in this really non-technical you know, technical way. But I would love to hear someone really unpack it and how we can all benefit from having more internal locus of control. Oh, I was looking for a pen so I could write it down. Sarah, I have a question for you. 
knowing after having this, because I think this is maybe the longest conversation we've ever had, which I'm really happy and excited about. But then also, if, after actually talking to me, would you, can you tie that back to being a Taurus? And mm. I'm selfishly asking you to now evaluate if you feel that is a, a genuine sort of the association of being stable and bullheaded. Um, I want you to get, update your read on me. Yeah. Well, again, I think there is something in your sixth house where it's driving your 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 business and maybe your parenting. And I wouldn't necessarily know enough to know what that would be. But then I think that you probably, you know, so Taurus is an earth sign. So really grounded in the material. It's ruled by Venus, which, you know, for art and everything that makes a lot of sense, that would be your sun sign. I feel like your quest for meaning is also very ninth house. So there's got to be something in your ninth house and that you are kind of someone who's like out in the world. So I feel like I'd like to look at your chart because my guess is you don't have a ton of earth in your chart um, because you're so interested in spiritual concepts and emotions that that feels really more connected to like water and maybe even air, um, just your interest in language. So that's my read. It's not very precise, but. Oh, no, I think it's it's fascinating because it's about me and everybody likes things that are about themselves totally. to a certain extent, I feel like. Can I ask you one more really quick question? Oh, yeah. Um, how, how did you decide, what about astrology sort of clicked with you as a means of like using it as a tool to understand reality out of like the endless sort of sea. I, I guess for an example, I am really into the Enneagram. Oh yeah. I love that too. Uh, <laughs> what what number are you? I, yeah. We don't have time for this. I'm a four. Okay. I, a that four? was my guess. I'm a four. I'm yeah. a four. Yeah. Because that's why we're here. <laughs> anyway. And every time I read about a four, I'm like, I'm a fucking four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very – Deep. But yeah, I was wondering what, what about astrology sort of felt like it really fit for you as a tool of understanding? Well, I have throughout my life become like completely obsessed by different systems. So like in high school, I was obsessed with Enneagram. Like we would sit around and talk about everything in the world in the context of the Enneagram. Love it. Like, oh, what a five. Oh, what a six. You know, like just so <laughs> annoying. And then our friends who did not like it were like, shut up. But um, with astrology, I think I like the the visuals because it's all kind of sitting there. And then there's this weird thing that happens in my mind where the energies of each of the planets and all the houses have this kind of conversation with each other. And then I just like channel what information is going to pop out without knowing maybe as much as like a professional astrologer. So, um, but I think it's, it's interesting because it, it talks about situations in your life and then the person basically like activates the dynamics that are described in a chart and everyone's going to be different. And so part of it is like, well, how did this person activate that placement? And I think you can learn something when someone does something really cool with it or vice versa. That makes sense too. When I think of you as a visual 
I never thought about how the interplay of the visual representations of astrology could be really helpful in using it as a as a method for assessing situations. Have you done a deck? I'm actually working on one right now. I'm working with Amy Major. We're going to create a spirit rescue deck, which is for basically the short story of it is if you have a ghost in your house, you basically pull this out and it's going to be safer than using a Ouija board because you're not channeling movement through your arms. And then, and so basically you'll be like, what is this ghost feeling? Who are they? And then how do I help them? And so that's going to be the concept of the deck. I just wanted to clarify that, Sarah, I think you're talking about your literal house because you were just talking about houses and astrology. Oh yeah. Like in your home. It's like literally in your kitchen. Yes. Thank you. That is good. Sure. You're welcome. (laughs) Well, cool. Is there anything you'd like to share that you're working on, Carissa, or anything coming up? I am turning 40. Oh, hey. And hey, thanks. And I am going to try to not be so routine oriented in the future. And I'm also going to figure out a way to take care of basic bodily functions, like eating nourishing food. Which is very six house. (laughs) And not. Sorry, I'm like, I don't have anything. um, You're already doing a lot. So it's cool to know that you aren't adding more things. I, I recently, or I think last year, I was like, oh, I want to write a book. And I recently finished my first essay. And I think it might be quite horrible. But I think something that I ascribe to is that I, the reason I feel like I get things done is because I work at it. Like nothing ever seems like it comes naturally. And I'm hoping that maybe if I just work at it, it will be better and okay. And then I can devote some time to it. Anyway. Well, you know that first shit draft, that's like a concept for a reason. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to just allow myself to be shitty and be okay with it. Thank you so much for having me. Not only is it it's such a delight to be able to be with you two, but also to mine the areas of your brains. Uh, I think I don't get a chance to. I would love to ask you both more questions about where you're at. And um, I really want to hear more about this ghost in the house deck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but weirdly enough, I'm working on, I just, we just, Suzanne Lahore, who I uh, will say her name the way that you say it. Lahore. I say it Suzanne LaRue, but yeah. Suzanne, if when you're listening to this, text us and call us immediately. Uh, we just finished a shadow deck. Um, oh, cool. That I'm really excited about it. It turned, it was the starting, it was at the beginning, it was a mindfulness deck, and then it turned into a shadow deck because we were like, oh, let's just, Give ourselves a little bit of a framework to look at maybe the things that we've been stuffing all of our lives. And I, it was really fun to be able to work with her. And I feel like I learned a lot about Jungian philosophy. That's so cool. Look forward to seeing that. And I look forward to stocking everybody's deck at Maker's Loft. I just feel like this is so exciting to have all these people I know creating these visual representations of these super complex ideas. And you guys are visual artists. And oh. it's like, Super bomb. Yay. Hot dog diggity. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast for good karma points. 
Until we meet again in the woo.